We're going to talk about dreaming a little bit today. And I, um, I usually don't remember my dreams. My wife is a different story. She remembers vividly her dreams and oftentimes takes half of breakfast to tell me all that she dreamt. Uh, and, you know, sometimes our dreams feel more significant to us. I remember my brother-in-law uh, several years ago was going through a phase where he would tell us that he would dream about whatever he had eaten the night before. Can you imagine that? And he said sometimes he got a little scary. He was chased by an enchilada in his dream. And I think sometimes we question ourselves and say, hey, is there any significance to what I dreamt? We can even ask ourselves the question, does God speak today through dreams and visions? I have a friend that I shared my faith with several years ago. He was from China, and uh, he was struggling to believe in Christ. Had never been around a Christian before. He was here as an international student. and said He called me one day and said, I had a dream last night of Jesus, and he revealed himself to me and said, why don't you believe in me? And he said, I got up and I invited Christ to come into my life. <laughs> so I, I certainly would not put dreams past the Lord. Uh, we do have many accounts similar to that on the mission field of God revealing himself in a dream or a vision to people who have never heard the gospel. And it's not the dream that saves them. Sometimes God will quicken a dream. But I would like to address the question, are dreams a normal, usual, New Testament way for God to speak to us? And I have no hesitation to say that is not the uh, normative pattern. Matter of fact, you don't have anywhere in the New Testament that encourages us to consider your dreams, to analyze your dreams, because God speaks to us through His Word. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God, reveals it to our hearts, and he, God, we, it's more personal. God dwells within us as followers of Jesus Christ, and His Word by His Spirit is His primary means of communication. But having said that, you have many different accounts in the Old Testament of God using a dream. A dream is when you're asleep and a vision is when you're awake or a vision to communicate his plan. Now, interestingly enough, he in several cases uses a dream or a vision to reveal his plan for his people through an unbeliever. Why exactly God would do that is one of those moments where we just pun it to the Lord and his wisdom. For if, if let's say that maybe in last century's terms, if God spoke to Joseph Stalin or to Adolf Hitler or to Saddam Hussein and revealed his plan for the USSR or the Berlin Wall or the future of the Persian Gulf, and the return of Christ to one of those leaders, we'd be shaking our head and scratching our head and wondering, what's going on? Well, I, I think Daniel must have felt that way. As he was called upon to interpret a dream for a leader that was along the lines of one of those 20th century hoodlums that I mentioned a moment ago. Last week, we sort of laid the groundwork of King Nebuchadnezzar having an awful dream and then his wise men, so to speak, could not interpret that. 
could not interpret the dream or even explain to him what the dream was about and give an explanation of it. And so in his rage, in his fury, he proclaimed that all of them should die. This included Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, Daniel boldly asked for more time. They pled with God. We left last week with the reality that God did reveal his dream to Daniel, and he was full of praise to God. We pick up the story in verse 24 of Daniel chapter 2 today, and in it we're going to find what to keep in mind for tomorrow. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. Now, I, I want to stop there and point out, as we're thinking about what to keep in mind for tomorrow, for the future, these first few verses remind us that number one, just seeing if you're awake there, that number one on your outline this morning is simply this, that God gets the credit. As we view the future, as we view tomorrow, we need to be clear and firm in our hearts that it's about living a life for the honor of God, that we want everything we say and do to point to the fact that God is worthy of all credit. And sometimes we have this Ariok tendency, and that's to raise the flag for ourselves. Sometimes it's subtle, and sometimes it might feel like it's just a little bit of credit we're desiring. But Ariok, when he goes to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, he takes Daniel with him, and he says, hey, King, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. What do you think this... Uh, politician was really wanting in front of the king he was wanting him to say wow great work i'm so proud of you did arioch really go search and find daniel no he's just he's just grabbing daniel on the way to the gallows and then daniel said hey what's the fuss and arioch tells him well you're about to die because no one can interpret the dream and all of a sudden daniel's the one that asked for time daniel pled to god god revealed himself to daniel but arioch wanted to take credit for it <laughs> Do you have that subtle tendency, whether it's overt bragging or maybe that leaning in your heart for the spotlight to come upon you? And, and that's A under number one, that we must avoid grabbing the spotlight. Be the person that deflects attention rather than grabs it or seeks it. And in your heart, seek to give glory to God. You know, it's okay to be a person that affirms and gives honor and, and encouragement to other people, but when you receive it, when you receive that encouragement, I think I'll, I, if you guys could turn this off, I'll just, I'll just use this this morning. Make sure to deflect the attention and avoid grabbing the spotlight. Now, as the story goes on, in verse 26, it says this, The king asked Daniel, also called Belshazzar, that's just a reminder of his new Babylonian name, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Remember, that was his condition. That you just don't come and tell me some crazy thing you made up that you think this dream means after I tell you what it means. I want you to tell me what I dreamt. And Daniel wants to be clear again. He's still on this theme of giving God the credit. He says this in verse 27. No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he is asked about. But there is a God in heaven 
who reveals mystery. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come, your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. B under number one is this principle, and that's to accept your inadequacy. You know, really, your own inadequacy is a gift. The world will tell you to talk about how great you are and to, to flex your own intellectual muscles. But the, the scripture reminds us that our competence comes from God. That's what 2 Corinthians 3, 5 says. You know, uh, also we find in Daniel that in verse 29, he says, O king, as you, as you were lying there, O king, as your mind turned to the things to come and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. And as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. I, I like what he's doing here. Notice the confidence he has. He has incredible confidence. He goes up to the king and boldly says, God did this. One of the big discussions in especially sports news but in news in general this week of course has been Super Bowl preparation and it seems like it's lasted forever but the defensive back for the Seattle Seahawks named Richard Sherman went on a rant after the championship game saying that he was the greatest uh, cornerback uh, in the National Football League and he was much better than the sorry receiver he was covering at the end of the championship game. And it's interesting, ever since he went on that rant, when Sherman has been interviewed, he sounded like such a different character. He sounded like somebody in a Rocky movie that's about to fight Rocky Balboa before that. And then he's just calm and sweet and just, hey, everything's cool. Well, here's the thing. Where does confidence come from? We're told that if you're assertive enough, if you smile big enough, if you can walk up into an uncomfortable situation enough and assert yourself and depend on your own sensibilities, then you'll become a confident person. Well, confidence doesn't come from bragging. Confidence doesn't come from believing you have what it takes. Daniel learned that real confidence comes from accepting your inadequacy and then see, under number one, from the ability to draw attention to God. You're going to become that, quote, confident person when you realize that God is the giver of all good things. That you, you become a confident person when you realize what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Because then it's not upon your ability to block the reception from the passer. It's not on your strength. It, it's the grace of God. It's his mercy in your life. So as Nebuchadnezzar faced the future, Daniel made it clear, and it should be clear to us that we should have a passion to draw attention to God. Well, in verse 31 through 43, there seems to be some details that may appear on the outside to be laborious, but there's an incredible truth that we must not miss this morning. And the, the truth is simply this, number two on your outline, that God rules over history. It's been said that history is written by the winners. Well, the truth is that history is ruled by God himself, by the king of kings. Note in verse 29 that Daniel said, what I'm about to tell you relates to the future. He's saying future things that have not existed yet. Matter of fact, he's going to make some predictions that about nations and 
countries that were nothing at this moment in history. They were extremely small nations and people, and he's making incredible predictions. Let me get into the dream, first of all, in verse 31. Remember, Daniel has not been told the dream. He's not heard what the dream's about. He's sitting there telling the king exactly what he dreamt. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue is made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly clay of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron and the clay, the bronze and the silver and the gold were broken into pieces at the same time, became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, imagine that you have, that your spouse or your family member is like Susie and can remember their dreams, and that person's about to tell you their dreams, and you stop at them and say, wait, you don't got to tell me. Honey, here's what happened. And you go on and you tell them everything that they dreamt, their jaw would have dropped. What? This is exactly what's going on in the king's court that day. Daniel just said, you dreamt this. And the, the great king, ruler of the world at that time, was blown away. In verse 36, this was the dream. And now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the fields and the birds of the air, wherever they live. He has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. Remember, there was a big statue, and it was made of gold, silver, bronze, and then iron mixed with clay. If, if you notice that the, as the statue is built it gets less and less valuable as it goes down. Now, those are, are very strong elements. Iron is a very strong element, but it has hardly any value compared to gold. And, and so the kingdoms might appear stronger, but their value, their ultimate, w what they're worth, it decreases because it is a, an institution of man. God's ruling over it. But, and so I'm going to share with you a common interpretation. Note under number two, Daniel's prophecy likely predicts the reign of, and I use the word likely only because the, the only clear mention of what the dream meant is A, and that's Babylon. The gold represents Babylon. Daniel predicted you're going to keep reigning. The Babylonian rule was, was from 636 B.C. to 539. And, and in the book of Daniel, we see the, that regime crumble by Darius of the Medes. And so as the dream continues, there's more insight as to what's going to go on. In verse 39, it says this, After you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. Isn't that interesting? It's an inferior kingdom, but it was able to conquer you. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there'll be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. It has more strength, but it doesn't have more value. And as iron breaks things into pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw, 
the feet and toes were partly baked of clay and partly of iron. So this will be a divided kingdom. It will have some of the strength of iron in it, even though you saw it was mixed with clay. And that goes on in 42 and 43 to continue talking about the iron. But there, there are three other kingdoms that most scholars believe that Daniel is predicting their rule way in advance. And B, under number two, is that Daniel's prophecy likely predicts the reign of the Medo-Persians, and that's represented by silver. And that was a, a long reign from 539 to 330 B.C. And then C, the next one, most believe that Daniel is predicting the rise of the Greek Empire. That was, of course, represented by bronze. Alexander the Great and his army all wore bronze um, from their sandals, from their outer garments, from their shields. They were made of a very strong bronze. And uh, basically, Alexander the Great, by 323 B.C., had conquered all of the known world. And the legend says that when he went past the area of Mesopotamia, he looked and he wept because there was no more world to conquer. It was a brutal regime in that sense. And they reigned until 63 B.C. when, they were, when the Greek Empire was taken down by the Romans. Maybe the most famous empire was that of Rome that was, of course, in full swing during the birth of our Lord Jesus. And so, D, God rules over Rome which is represented by iron. The legions of iron are represented by Rome. Also, there are, I want to caution you as we look at Daniel, especially in the 7 through 12 chapters, there's some people that like to make guesses and hunches about every little detail. And like some, when it talks about the 10 toes of clay and iron, some have wanted to speculate through the years that maybe Daniel is referring to something in our times such as NATO or the European Union. Some Bible teachers on television right now will say that Daniel's prophecy refers to the European Union and the one world government and the European currency. And uh, those prophecies tend to change with whatever is on the news that day in that newspaper. I would caution you not to over-interpret every detail. If it does come to be that that's true what happens, we'll all rejoice, but it's a detractor spiritually for us to lose the overarching principle with a possible holy hunch on what this may or may not be. But I do point out these four things to remind us that God is in control. And, and to remind us this, that God's in control in advance, and that when we build our kingdom, we do our own thing apart from God, it does not go from strength to strength. It becomes weaker and weaker and weaker. And that God rules and reigns. And, and we don't need to wring our hands with every single election that happens that we don't like the outcome of. Yes, we should exercise good citizenship and wise God-honoring voting and legislation, but we can also place our confidence not in the ballot box, but in who God is, and that he has an ultimate plan that we can't see. Now, to me, the amazing thing that he revealed to the king has to do with the rock. You remember back in verse 34, when he, as he told him about the statue, that these four kingdoms that were going to come were going to be swept away, were going to be wiped out by a rock. And in verse 44, and 45, he gives a little more information about that. He said this, in the time of those kings, and that would be, of course, in the fourth kingdom during the time of Rome, 
The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. Anybody maybe get a sense of what he's predicting here? In verse 45, this is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out from the mountain but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. Interesting reference that Jesus, of course, in several places in the New Testament is called the rock of ages, and he's the cornerstone. And this rock reference of Christ is a a powerful reminder, number three on your outline, that Christ will reign forever. Now, rocks are very have the ability to crush. Maybe you've taken a rock and have just thrown it somewhere. I remember when I was little, my uh, grandmother had rocks in her driveway. Just, you know, it was a pavement with pebbles all over it. And it's not a great place for grandsons to play sometimes unsupervised. I remember when I was eight years old or so, somewhere in there, I had two little cousins that were, you know, three, three or four years younger than me. We were playing in Nanny's driveway with rocks. And I, th- we, and I said, to him, hey, why don't you throw it out in the street? And he goes, okay. He would do anything Big Cousin Cliff said. And as he threw it out in the street, there was a car that came by. And it, why couldn't it have been a Hyundai or a Kia? It was a Cadillac. And, of course, we did what any responsible God-fearing grandkids would do. We ran into the backyard. And, of course, they came around and were talking to the grown-ups in the house. And they worked out some kind of deal. And then, of course, the kids were interviewed. And it came back to me. Cliff told me to throw a rock at the car, you know. I found out that day that rocks can be dangerous. Jesus is referred to as the rock. Now, note in verse 44, 34, and 45 that he's cut out. The rock is cut out, not by human hands. It's pointing that this rock is not of a human origin. That would, of course, be a reference to likely the virgin birth of Christ. He's going to be born in an entirely different way than anyone else. Why? Because he is deity. This is the divine rock of Lord Jesus Christ. And it says his kingdom will never end. This is likely a reference to the second coming of Christ, where Christ sets up his millennial reign before the Great, the great white throne judgment, then the millennial reign, then the new heaven and the new earth. And Christ will reign forever and ever and ever. This is a great victory. Now, I'm not even sure, we don't even get the sense that Daniel had a great understanding of everything that was coming out of his mouth. He could probably have hope that God was up to something good for his people and would draw the nations to himself. And the king had literally no idea what he was talking about. But we can look back and see this and say, glory to God. God's reminding us that he holds the keys to the future and that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And our hope is firmly set in him. On those days when you, brother and sister, are going through deep waters and darkness of your soul remember that jesus christ will reign forever and ever and he's the rock that will smash all that this world has set up and 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 will wipe every tear from your eye he is the one who has reigned forever because he's conquered death and has done it through the cross now at the end of verse 45 i like what daniel says the great god has shown the king what will take place in the future the dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy 
He's just said to the king, what I just told you, you can count on. That statement is a reminder to me of principle number four about what, what to keep in mind for tomorrow is that God's word is reliable. Maybe you've had someone tell you what I was told several years ago by a young man, that the reason I don't believe the Bible is because the Bible is so full of contradictions. Now, as I talked to this gentleman, I made, it became very clear that he had no idea what the Bible said. But he had heard somewhere, some day, by someone, that the Bible was full of contradictions. And since he had not, did not want to submit to the Bible and wanted to do his own thing and live the life the way he pleased, he had a sound bite he was repeating. The Bible's full of contradictions. Not that he could name any. Not that he knew of any, but he'd heard someone say that, and it sounded very convenient. Now, there's a group out there, and you might even refer to them as liberal scholars, that like to give Daniel a hard time because he was too accurate. Daniel had too many insightful things to say about the future. And so, since God cannot be that knowledgeable of what is to come, they like, they're, they're in a group referred to as late daters of Daniel. In other words, this book was not written by the prophet, and it wasn't written uh, before these things came to pass. It was written sometime during the period of the Roman rule, because that would have made sense. Because God's certainly not involved in the miraculous. And, and it's just a convenient thing to do when you want to avoid a God who knows all. But one of the reasons why we reject a late dating of Daniel and believe that this book is trustworthy and reliable of course, the, the reason I believe it's reliable is because God has used it to change my life forever. But even to give reasons for it, archaeological evidence proves some of the minute details of Daniel. For instance, this book could have just said some of these uh, minute names like Aspenaz that we looked at in the first chapter. Well, archaeological evidence has confirmed that they have found and excavated statues that say Aspenaz, a servant of the king of Nebuchadnezzar. There's those kind of details that confirm much of the accuracy of this book. Also, one of the main reasons I believe in the prophecies of Daniel is because there's someone in Matthew 24 by the name of Jesus that referred to Daniel and that talked about Daniel's abom prediction of the abomination of desolation that we'll study weeks down the road in Daniel chapter 9. He says that Daniel's prophecy are true, and Jesus Christ, by his own life, death, and resurrection, did plenty to, for us to believe that what he says is accurate. So this morning, I, I want to boost your confidence in the Word of God, that God's Word is reliable. Not only is it reliable, it's authoritative. And so don't read God's word as cute little suggestions, but read it as my authority. Now in verse 46, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and respect in order that an offering and of incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mystery, for you were able to reveal this great mystery. And then verse 49 and 48 talks about how he was rewarded and was given a place of honor in his kingdom. But, but Nebuchadnezzar's response is incredible to this great vision of God. And, and principle number five reminds us of this. Our response to God is vital. 
as we look toward the future, remember that the way you respond to God as he deals with you in life is extremely important. And A, under number five, we must first of all note that our response to God should be authentic. I'm not trying to imply that Nebuchadnezzar's response is inauthentic, but we do note from what goes on in chapter 3 and chapter 4 that Nebuchadnezzar was not a changed man yet. God changes his life, but it doesn't happen yet. And so he saw that God knew all. He saw that God was in control. He saw that God revealed this great mystery, and he worshiped the God of Daniel, but there was no life change. And so don't just have emotional responses to God based on the moment, based on what you feel and think might be right that day. Uh, allow your response to God to be so authentic that it translates into absolute life change. And so the other principle about responding to God is not just that it should be authentic, but it should be be complete. There, we, we find at the end of chapter 4 what appears to be a great and complete life change in response to God of obedience by Nebuchadnezzar. But there was a lot of things that happened until then in his life. And maybe today God's been knocking on the door of your heart, revealing himself to you. And there's been a lot of things that you've done that you've responded poorly to God. Let today be the day where from your heart, not because of any other reason for, and for anyone else, but authentically respond to God in repentance. And let it be a, a, re a repentance that is complete and that is absolute and genuine. Let's take a moment and bow together as we consider our response to God this morning. You know, maybe some of you are here today, and you've never placed your faith in Christ. You've never come to that moment of, of allowing God to engineer the circumstances of your life for him. We know that the scripture says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let today be the day where you come to be saved. Living Lord, we give you thanks. We ask that you would open up hearts and eyes and draw people to your truth. Thank you for the way you spoke to Daniel and revealed that dream to him. And thank you that it reminds us that you rule over history, that we don't wring our hands at what's going on in the world without hope, that you are trustworthy. Deepen our dependence on you today. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. And if you're here today and you'd like to pray with someone about what it means to know Christ personally, we simply invite you to stand and in a moment and come forward. And maybe you're sensing God's leadership to become part of this church family or want to talk to someone about being baptized. We want to talk and pray with you today. So as we stand, you come this morning.